Thank you, Nathan, for um, yeah, just wonderful testimony of God's grace. Yeah, we behold the cross uh, age to age, hour by hour. Right? The dead are raised, the sinner saved, the work of his power. Uh, we testify the fact that God is so good. Amen? Uh, we're in the book of Esther, and uh, there will be no Nathan Mullins. There will be no two J's if it wasn't for the events that happened in the book of Esther. And so I want to just kind of catch us up to speed here uh, as, we, as we prepare to go into uh, chapter 4. Uh, the people of God, the Jews, it's about 483, 473, that 10-year period. They're living in Persia, okay, which is the dominant empire of the time. The majority of the Jews are in Persia. Uh, some of them, the faithful remnant, have gone back to Jerusalem. But most of them are in Persia, and they're being uh, overseen by an awful king. His name is King Xerxes. Okay? Uh, Xerxes was a bad man. Uh, yesterday, one of our sixth grade uh, uh, young ladies, Grace, uh, said, oh my gosh, when is King Xerxes going to die? I hate him. <laughs> uh, that's the sentiment, right? That's the sentiment that we ought to have. I hate King Xerxes. He's bad. He's not a good king. Uh, we want Xerxes to die, but as of yet, he hasn't, at least where we've been studying. Now, Xerxes was a bad king. He was impulsive. He wanted to get people on his side, and so he throws this like massive blowout of a party, and then he wants to parade the beauty of his wife, the queen, Vashti, but she's not having any part of it. And so he says, I don't want you to be queen anymore, and he gets rid of her. He goes off to war for four years, comes back having been defeated, and he says, I want a new queen. I need a new wife. And so uh, he sends commissioners into the vast, far-reaching corners of the empire and says, I want you to find some young girls for me who have never been with a man before, and I want to be the first one. And so anywhere from 300 to 10,000, depending on who you ask, what, uh, where you ask, um, all of these girls are brought in, and each of them spends one night with the king. Like, this is not enough to make you hate King Xerxes, then I don't know what is, but this is what happens. And out of all of these young girls whose lives have been ripped from them at the age of uh, 13, 14, 15, being confined to a, a widow from the moment they, uh, they're taken from their homes, never to know the love or feel the warmth of a man, Of all these girls, an orphaned girl whose parents died when she was young from the, Jewish, from the Jewish race named Esther rises up to become the next queen of Persia. Now, she's been raised by an older cousin named Mordecai. And what Mordecai is uh, hanging out, he's got these like political um, desires and aspirations. He overhears this plot that these people are going to assassinate King Xerxes. And so he tells Esther, who's the queen now, and she tells the king... And the plot is foiled. Mordecai's name is written down in a book, but he never gets the honor that's due him. In fact, uh, Xerxes is so, uh, he's so kind of overcome with this fear and paranoia that someone might try to assassinate him that he decides, I need a right-hand man, someone who's going to guard my interests, someone who's going to wear my signet ring, who's going to be the right hand in order that if anything happens, he's there to protect. And so uh, instead of it being Mordecai, which everyone is suspecting is going to be Mordecai, it's the sworn enemy of Mordecai's people, a man named Haman. And so Haman rises up and gets the signet ring. He's basically the, um, the, the second in charge in all of Persia. 
And while this is happening, everyone starts giving him props. And like in an, if you're in an Asian, we're, this is an English congregation of a Korean church. And so on the other, in the other building is a Korean-speaking congregation. And they don't really shake hands. They bow to each other like this as their way of saying hello, their way of, of, of uh, giving respect to one another. It's kind of like what they were doing to Haman in those days. They weren't worshiping him. They are just giving their respect. Except Everyone does that except for one guy, Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't want to give him his props. He doesn't want to bow to him. And so Haman gets really upset, and he says, okay, that Mordecai, he's bad. I'm going to kill him. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I want to kill all of the people that he represents. So it's kind of like this. Here we are in Florida. Okay, we're at a church in Florida, and you've got one guy. uh, Let's pick on Dan. Okay, Dan comes from North Carolina. Okay, he comes from North Carolina, and he decides that one day he doesn't say hi to someone. Okay, and that person gets really mad, and he says, oh, my gosh, that Dan, and it goes on day after day after day after day, week after week after week, and so he says, you know what, let's, let's get rid of Dan, but not just Dan, but everyone else from North Carolina. Like, they're all bad people. That's crazy. But that's what Haman's saying, not just Mordecai, but all of his people. And so on this one day, 11 months out, the 15 million Jews in the Persian Empire are going to be killed in a day of purging, a pre-Holocaust Holocaust against the Jewish people. And so what happens next as we come to Esther chapter 4, it's an important stage, it's an important period, important point in the book where you'll continue to see there's a lot of plot twists, there's a lot of crazy things that happen throughout um, the book of, of Esther. But we come to chapter 4 and probably one of the more significant moments and one of the more significant points in the book of Esther. So I'm going to read from uh, verses 1 through 14. And as I do, I just kind of want to fill in with a little bit of commentary before I go into our three thoughts in terms of how do we live in the midst of a Persian empire? How do we live as God's people in the midst of an empire whose values are so different from the values of uh, the word of God? This is Esther chapter 4. We'll start with verse 1. When Mordecai, okay, uh, he learned of all that had been done, meaning, okay, 11 months later, the extermination of the Jews. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. So what happens here is Mordecai hears that, oh my gosh, all of my people are going to be killed in a night of death against the, uh, uh, amongst the Jewish people. We're all going to get killed. And so when he hears that that's going to happen, he puts on sackcloth, which is like putting on burlap, which is a really uncomfortable material. And it's meant to be worn under your clothing so that when you wear that, when you feel it, you're not comfortable. So it Uh, remind you of the torment of your soul. They would wear this when there were times of mourning or repentance. This uncomfortable feeling and then put sackcloth, not only sackcloth, but ashes as a sign of death because he's saying our people are going to die. We're on the doorstep of death. And he rips his clothes as a sign of his heart that has been ripped into two. I'm not sure that I'm altogether sympathetic of Mordecai because it was his goofy just desire to not give props to the man that caused this to happen, right? Because he didn't bow. 15 million lives are at stake, but he realizes that he's blown it and he's weeping loudly and bitterly. Verse 2, but he went only so far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In other words, the king didn't want to be bothered by your trifling sadness, so just keep that away, far away, so that the king doesn't hear of your trouble. Verse 3, 
In every province to which the great, uh, to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, that he's flipping out, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of a sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Okay, so all she knows is, hey, Queen Esther, your uncle, your cousin Mordecai, he's tripping out at the king's gates. Like, he's going crazy right now, and she doesn't know why. All of the empire, the Jews around the empire, are weeping and wailing and fasting and crying and mourning and tearing their skin up and they're, because they know they're going to die. But inside the palace, Esther is completely oblivious. How does that happen? How is she so completely unaware of the fact that her people are going to be laid victim to genocide in 11 months? She's completely unaware. Apparently, things like this happened all the time. Like Xerxes would just decide on a people group and say, hey, let's just get rid of them. I don't like them. Uh, Let's just exterminate them. Let's kill them. Let's get rid of the whole lot of them. And so this was no big deal. NBD to King Xerxes. So you don't even need to tell Esther. So she doesn't know. All she knows is Mordecai is going crazy. He's going berserk. And she goes to find out why. It's like getting a phone call from, you know the phone number. It's your friend. And so you answer it, and they're hysterical on the other line. They can't talk. They're just weeping and wailing, and you're like, okay, calm down, like, take a deep breath, okay, take a deep breath and tell me what's going on. That's Mordecai and Esther. So she's like, what in the world is going on? Verse 6, so Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Basically, Mordecai's like, Esther, hey, I did something really bad, and now all of God's people and all of God's promises are at stake, and I need you to fix this. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches a king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days passed since I was called to go to the king. So in these verses in Esther's speech, one, two, three, four, five times, five times in in basically two verses here, five times in two verses, Esther the queen is talking about the king. Esther the queen is talking about her husband, but every time she mentions him five times, she doesn't say, Xerxes, she doesn't say the king, I'm sorry, she doesn't say Xerxes, she doesn't say my husband, she doesn't say the one who has pledged his, she doesn't say any of that stuff, she says the king. This is what's on her mind. He is no husband to her, he's a despot, he's not known for his mercy, he's the king, and the rule of the land, they all knew this, was that anyone who approaches the king without being summoned first would be put to death. 
Because a king, again, doesn't want you to get, bring your common people problems to him. He doesn't want you to bring your issues to him. He doesn't want to be bothered by anything that he doesn't want to be bothered by. And so the only way that you can come into his presence is if he calls for you. And Esther can't just go into the presence of, she doesn't think he's a husband. She doesn't think he's just Xerxes. He's the king to her. This is no fairy tale romance marriage here. They're not going on date nights and having a good time together. 30 days have come and gone, and she hasn't been called by the king. Hasn't gone into the bedroom, and he has not been sleeping alone. There's countless other women that he's been bringing into his bedroom at night, and it's been 30 days. He's like, you don't know what you're asking of me. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This is God's word. This is... Um, just a momentous, huge crisis point, not only in Esther's life, but in the life of all the Jews in Persia, Mordecai included, but the 15 million that are estimated to be living in Persia. What happens? What do you do in a situation like this? Your life is on the line. How do you live in the midst of an empire whose values are different and opposed to the life of God, the life of faith, the life of Scripture, the teachings of the Holy Word of God? How do you live like this in the midst of this kind of a world? There's a few thoughts that I just want to bring out here that Esther sees that Mordecai speaks into her life that I think he speaks into ours, I think are really important and instructive. Here's the first thing. First thing is this. It's God's will, okay, that you are where you are at this specific moment in history. It is God's will that you are where you are at this specific moment in history. I know some of... Let me read what he says at the end of verse 14. Who knows but that you have come to royal position... For such a time as this. In other words, Esther, you could be living at any point in human history, but you're living in 483 to 473 B.C. You could be living anywhere. You should be in Jerusalem, but you are in Persia. You could be a commoner, but you are a queen. Do you understand that everything that has led up until this point in time has you in the in the, in the citadel of Susa, the most important place in the known world, the wife of the king, and it just so happens that your people are the group of people who are being threatened to be annihilated. Could it be that you are here in such a place for a purpose far greater than for you to live your Kim Kardashian lifestyle of wealth and beauty and privilege? He's saying it's God's will that you're here. You... This is something that we have to understand, okay? Some of you, whether you like it or not, here's your reality. You are living in, in 2019 in Florida. Unless you're a guest here, you're from somewhere else. But we are where we are. We live where we live. We work where we work. We go to school where we go to school. We do all the things that we do for a specific reason, and that is not an accident why you are in the place where you are. He says, Esther, think about it. 
there were, again, anywhere from 300 to 10,000 girls who were taken from the corners of the Persian Empire and brought into the king's harem and each spends one night with the king. And Mordecai is saying, Esther, do you think it was because you were that beautiful? Could you have been that much more beautiful than every other girl that walked into the king's bedroom during that period of time? Could it be, you, you think it's because you flirted well? Do you think other girls couldn't flirt well? Because you could do things to make people happy. You think other people couldn't do that? The fact that an orphaned Jewish girl has risen to prominence as the most powerful woman in the most powerful empire, could it be that there is a purpose bigger than simply your own pleasure for which you are here, Esther? That's the question he's asking. Now think about in Esther's mind. She's like, you know what? I didn't choose this for myself. I didn't want to be here. Maybe as you think about your life, you wouldn't have chosen this kind of a life for yourself. You think about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when you dreamed of what life would look like 10 years later, 20 years later in the, in the, in the here and now, and you're thinking about your life. You never in your wildest dreams imagined that this is where you'd be. Some of you came ki- coming to Orlando kicking and screaming, and you still don't want to be here. But this is where you are. Some of you, hey, Esther, She didn't want her parents to die when she was a kid. But for whatever reason, it happened that way. She didn't want to be orphaned as a young girl. She didn't want to be taken from Mordecai's home and brought into the harem. She didn't want to lose her her, her virginity to a man who didn't love her. She didn't want to marry a pagan king to be in a lifeless, loveless marriage for the rest of her life. That's not what she would have chosen. But in the midst of all of those things, though the night is dark, I know I'm not forsaken. This is what Mordecai is saying. Though you were not walking with God, he was walking with you every step of the way, and it's led you to where you are right now. Some of the choices that you've made, Esther, you may be ashamed of them. You may have made bad choices, but in the sovereignty of God, he will turn ashes into beauty in order that his purposes can be accomplished through your life. Do you understand, Esther, could it be that you are where you are because it is the will of God and there's something far greater that you don't see and it is for such a time as this that you are who you are, where you are in this particular point in time because God has a purpose for you. There's a couple things in each of our lives that we may not have chosen that are sovereignly orchestrated by God. Your place and your position right now, your place, where you are and the position that you have are not accidents. You're there because God wanted you there. Well, you think about this. What school are you at? Could it be that you feel like, man, I feel like I'm living in Persia in the midst of my school. Well, what is the will of God as you live in your school that is opposed to the life of Christ within you. So God spreads out his people in your school so that they would be a witness, so that others would find the hope of Christ. You are where you are for a reason and for a purpose. Maybe some of you are in a job that either you didn't choose, and you, hey, for better or for worse, y'all, some of you, it's not like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be here, but some of you, you know for a fact that there's no human reason why you ought to be where you are, making the money that you're making promoted to the positions to which you've been promoted. And you know this is the grace of God, but you're living it up and you're loving it and you're soaking it all in. Can I tell you, uh, it's not an accident that that's where you are. Your place and your position, your influence and your affluence are not accidents, but in the sovereign will of God, you are where you are for this specific moment in history. I've mentioned 
often how uh, when I was a senior in high school, I applied to two colleges, two colleges. One, uh, my brother went there. It would have been cool for me to go there. It was a decent school. I got in there. Another school was a school that I didn't think I could get in. I was waitlisted. I got in later. I knew that it probably had to be the work of God nudging the heart of the admissions officers to let this one particular guy in, and I did by the grace of God. So I went to, ended up going to that college, and while I was there, uh, in my first semester, I, I began having this like, you know, you look back and you start wondering, what if I had gone somewhere else? What if I was with this other group of friends? What if I was in the place where I originally thought I was going to go? What if all of these things? And, and so as I thought about those things, maybe two, three months into the first semester there, I started complaining to whomever would listen. said, I, you know what, I'm going to transfer down to the, this other school. I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't like it here. And, and I knew in my heart I wasn't going to do that. Right? I was complaining so that people would give me sympathy. You know how we do this sometimes, right? Just complaining, ah, you know, people are, are, are bad here, they're not good friends, or all this stuff, blah, 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 and I'm going to transfer to the other school and all that stuff. And so, I, you know, I had that, that thing going on. And so people would listen, they're like, ah, you know, it'll get better, it'll get better, it'll get better. And say, ah, it's not going to get better, I'm going to transfer. And, you know, sometimes you say that in the hopes that, Oh, no, don't transfer. We love you. We love you. And yeah. So I was having that throw myself this pity party. And then this one older person in our campus ministry said, hey, um, if you're going to transfer, then you should do it. Okay? But I don't think you're going to do it. I think you're just complaining to complain. I don't think you're going to do it because I think you really, deep in your heart, you like it here. You know you're supposed to be here. So as long as you know you're going to be here, you should just stop complaining and bloom where God has planted you. Can I tell you how liberating it was for my soul to hear that? To know that, okay, I'm here because God wants me here. My grade point average should not have gotten me access into that college, but I was there. And I knew that it was the work of God, and it had to be the will of God that I was there. And so I needed to stop complaining and just, and there was a freedom that came. The next three and a half, four years, I'm going to be here. So let's live the will of God, the purpose of God, the call of God, understanding that you're here for a purpose, and let's find that and let's live that. And so for the next, uh, for the remainder of my time there, I really began to see I'm here because this campus needs Jesus. So many people, the weekend starts on Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're getting wasted, and they think that's why they go to college. That's why they take out hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans in order to live a life of four years of debauchery that sets them up for habits and patterns of ungodliness uh, until they become parents. There's got to be more to it than that. So we would go to the, 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 the um, rugby road where all the fraternities were. We would share the gospel with people. We would pray. I... I, I laid so many tears and left so many tears on that campus. And after the four years were up, five years were up, left that school, and I really began to feel in my heart that, man, I, I'm leaving here having fulfilled the will of God for my time there. And I could honestly say not, not with, with not a, 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 I'm not boasting when I say this or no pride within my heart, but I'm saying that campus was better when I left because God had me there because of the things that we were able to sow into, and because of the things we were able to see, things we were able to do and take steps of faith into, because we knew that we were there. Whether I liked it or not, I knew that I was there for the will of God at that specific 
moment in history because there was a group of people on that campus who needed a Christian witness, and I was in a place where I was able to give that to the people. Do you know that where you are at this specific moment in history is part of the will of God? It's not an accident. And if that's where you are, then you would hear the voice of God saying, could it be that it is, you are where you are in this position for such a time as this? It's the first thing that we see and the first thing that Mordecai is trying to get Esther to understand. It's not an accident. The second thing that he wants her to see and the second thing that I think the Lord wants us to see is that God will use you if you're willing or else he'll find someone else. Look at what he says to Esther. Okay, she, he knows she's the queen here. Verse 13 do not think that because you're in the king's palace, king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. In other words, you're the woman to do it, Esther. But if you don't, God's promises do not hinge upon you. And they will not be thwarted by your disobedience. He'll find somebody else. For the first time, we're seeing in Mordecai a modicum of faith to believe that, Esther, if you don't, God's promise to the Jewish people will continue. He will remember his people. He will remember his children. He will remember his promise, and he will not be denied because you choose not to obey him. If you don't, he'll find someone else. When I was a kid, 8 to 10 years old, I, I played Little League Baseball. Right? That was my... I, my thing, I love playing baseball. My first year, I was eight, probably second, third grade. I played for a team called the Reds, right? We were awful. We lost all 14 games, 0-14. Terrible. So sad. Second year, moved on. I played with the Dodgers. We won one game, and we lost like 11 or 12 games, right? I became very accustomed to losing. I think the Lord knew I would be an Orioles fan as an adult, and so he was preparing me for it. But when I played for the Reds, uh, I was a decent player, and so I pitched, okay, and I played first base. For Little League Baseball, those are important because every, wherever you play, pitcher is important because they're involved in almost every play. But first base for Little League is important because kids don't hit very far, and so it's usually like little squibbers, and so someone in the infield has to throw it to the first baseman who catches it. Pitcher and first base were pretty important. That's what I played. This one game, probably like the eighth or ninth, I forget, somewhere in the middle of the season, like I thought I had solidified my position as the first baseman for the Herndon Arborist Reds, right? I was, yeah. So I, there I was first base, and one day I couldn't go to a game. Couldn't go to a game, and so my, my parents were like, all right, you got to call Coach King and tell him that you're not going to come. Right? That's respectful. I said, nobody calls the coach. I, just, I don't know if they did or not, but I told them no one does because I didn't want to call the coach because I was scared. Right? Um, I was the kind of kid who, you know, I couldn't order Domino's pizza you know, or wouldn't order my food at McDonald's, always like, be hanging on to my mom or dad's arm or my brother saying, you order me, can you order me like a cheeseburger, chicken McNuggets? So I didn't want to call Coach King. And so I was scared. And so I said, nobody calls him to tell him that they're not coming. Well, we lost that game because I wasn't there. We lost. And then I went to practice the next week, and the coach basically said, he said, hey, David, we missed you at the game last week. We could have used you. We lost. We might have won had you been there. We'll never know. <laughs> we might have won if you had been there, but you weren't. And I didn't know that you were coming and so I had to give your position to somebody else. He said, go get your glove on and go out to right field. 
right field is basically baseball purgatory for Little League. That's like Siberia. Nothing happens in right field because kids can't hit the ball that way. 90, 99% of the batters are right-handed, and so they hit the ball to left field, not into right field. So I'm just sitting there, like, thinking about life, throwing my glove up in the air, like, wondering when the third out is going to be made so we can go back in. I'm sitting out there, and what the coach was telling me was, hey, you've got to understand your position was not given to you just so that you could have that position and enjoy it, but you're part of a purpose that's far bigger. We're trying to win. I know it doesn't seem like it, but we're trying to win games here. <laughs> you need to be involved in it because you are in that position, and my team and its goals will not be thwarted because you did not realize that you are meant for something more than just playing first base for yourself, right? You're part of a team. And if you don't claim your position, then I'll give it to someone else. And that's what he did. And for the rest of that season, I played in right field, wondering what had become of my eight-year-old life. This is what Mordecai's saying to Esther. He's saying, listen, you're in a position, right? It's not for yourself. Okay, you are in prime position to be used of God in order to save your people. The question is, Will you step into that or will you not? Will you embrace the call of God or will you make God find someone else? Like the same thing is true in our lives. If you think that your position, your influence and your affluence are just for yourself, when God calls you to use that, to leverage that, to be a voice for people who need it, if you see that and you choose not to, step into your destiny, then God will find someone else. His purposes will not be thwarted by our, by our disobedience, our lack of following the will of God. He says, listen, Esther, you're the one to do it, but if you don't, deliverance is going to come from somewhere else. Who knows where it's going to come from, but God will not be left without a witness. He will do his work. I think sometimes we can become so picky when it comes to what we want to do for God. And I wonder if some of us are passing up great opportunities in the future to be faithful with much because we're giving up opportunities to be faithful in the little things. Maybe God's saying, hey, one day, can I tell you, I, man, I think so many of the ones in our church who are being used by God so much, sharpen the sword of their serving heart through doing things that other people didn't sign up to do. I'll clean our church. I'll mop the floors. I'll do things when no one is looking. I'll wash the toilets. I'll spray them down. Being willing to do those. It, hey, yeah, if... if if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Someone else will know the privilege and the blessing and the opportunity of being able to serve God in that way. And I don't want you to miss out on opportunities to be used by God in whatever way that might be. I, I look back on the years that we went to the Dominican Republic for missions with great fondness. There were some great times that we used to have. And, and some of my favorite times were when there'd be like three or four churches and we'd all go down there together and there'd be a bunch of pastors. There'd be like three, four, five of us who are pastors and, and then we'd take turns. Hey, uh, when the, the 
the missionary in charge would say, all right, you preach on Wednesday night, you preach at our youth service, you preach on Friday night, you preach at our Sunday service, you preach at the revival service, you preach at, at, at this church plant, and then, you know, we'd all get uh, morning prayer responsibilities divided up amongst ourselves. And so we'd be preaching like multiple times, and, and sometimes they'd be like, uh, one of the other pastors would, uh, from, from the DR, Dominican Republic, would come, and they would say, hey, uh, Pastor David, can you preach tonight at this, uh, at this special talent show? I'll say, sure, I could do that. When, uh, when will that be? He would look at his watch, and he would say, uh, five minutes. <laughs> like, but then I would think to myself, if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it, but this is why I came here. I came down here to bring the word of God, right, to share the hope of Christ. If I don't do it, someone else is going to have that privilege and blessing. So, yeah, I'll do it. And so I'll be, like, scrambling, and, and half the time we go into a room, and I would look at my, my, my computer to try and get a sermon together, and, and there'd be no power in that place. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I have to just, like, go off the cuff, just the Bible, and just start talking. And, and, but if I don't do it, someone else is going to know that joy of seeing God meet them and show up in that place. There was one pastor from, from up north, and... He had preached a couple times, and the pastor, the missionary there said to him, uh, oh, you know, he's, he talks like kind of like a, a scary man, and he's like, I want you to preach. He's saying this all in Korean. He's like, I want you to preach tonight. And the pastor said, oh, but um, I don't have any more sermons. I only brought two, and I've already preached them. And then the, the missionary looked at him, and he said, you know, when I was your age, when I was a young, young Christian, gave my life to the Lord, Anytime I had any opportunity to do anything for God, if it was folding uh, bulletins, if it was cutting out paper, if it was setting up chairs, if it was mopping the floor for God, I would always, anytime I was asked, I would humbly put my head down and say, yes, uh, it is my privilege to serve the Lord. And I would do it whether I was ready or not, whether I wanted to or not. I knew that to serve God and be used by Him was a privilege. And then he walked away, and he never asked that <laughs> pastor to share again uh, during that mission trip. Because if not him, someone else will do it. Someone else will do it. Do you know that you are where you are at this specific moment in history because God has a purpose, and it runs right through your life? That there's something that God is wanting to use your life for for this particular moment in history, 2019, in America, in our world, or somewhere in our world, for such a time as this, that he has raised you to where you are. It's the second thing that we see, is that God will use you if you're willing, or he'll find someone else. And then the last thing we see, is that God's calling uh, calls for courage to leave your comfort zone. And if you're looking in the bulletin, you might have thought, oh, that's an easy one. God calling calls you to leave your company. No, it's not. It calls for courage because every time we step into our calling, it demands courage from us. You see here with Esther, what's happening here is that in order for her to do something, she's got to risk her life in the presence of the king who is not known for his kindness, his mercy, his goodness, especially towards women. And just as Vashti, the queen prior, was deposed. It should be the expectation that the same will happen to Esther. But here she is, and she has this moment of crisis. Will I step into 
my God-given destiny, that every event of my life has led me to this point in time. Did you know that everything that's happened in your life has led you to where you are right now? None of that is an accident, right? And you're here. And for Esther, the choice is clear. Will I rise into my God-given identity as Hadassah of the people of God? Faith in my God, the father, uh, uh, the one who promised to our father Abraham all of the promises of the covenant? Or will I shrink back into the cozy comforts of the citadel and remain Queen Esther of Persia? Guys, this is the choice that we have to make also as we live in Persia. There have been privileges that have been given to us because we live in this world, because you're here. You have money and you have influence in ways that you wouldn't have if you were living in some places in the world. And the question is, will I continue to use that for myself or will I step into a God-given destiny that is risky, that is scary, but it could be used of God to bring 15 million Jews to find their hope in Christ. I think we often use these words in tandem with each other. Passion, okay, understand this. We all have a passion. This is where the, it's the intersection of what your heart beats for and what your hands are good at doing. Some of you, you love cooking. Your heart loves cooking, and you're really good at cooking. That's your, I have, you have a passion for cooking. Some of you are really good at playing, uh, singing, right? Playing musical instruments and your heart beats for that. That's your passion, right? To do those things and to do them well. Some of you are really good at arguing with people and, and, and your heart is to, is to fight for against injustice, to fight for justice and, and your passion then is, I want to go into debate, I want to go into law, whatever it is. That's passion where your heart and your hands intersect. Your mission okay, is where your heart, like what does your heart beat for, intersects with the needs of this world. Okay. Maybe for some of us it's, man, I, I get, my heart really um, goes out to like whales who are being killed in the oceans and, and there's an opportunity for you to get involved in that and there's your mission. Now you go work towards freeing the whales or, or some of you get really... Um, I don't know what it is that you get excited about. Maybe it's, it's about like human trafficking and, and, and your heart beats about the, over the injustice and you want to do something. About, there's your mission. Your purpose, okay, your calling is the intersection. Your calling is the intersection of what your heart beats for, what your hands are good at, and what needs are present in the world today. That's your calling. And for you to step into your calling, it's going to demand that you step out of your comfort. It takes courage to do that because it's not easy. So here Esther is confronted with literally a life and death decision. Esther, don't think that because you're in the palace, you're going to be spared of all the Jews. Because if they find out you're a Jew, you're going to get killed also. If you go to the king, you may die. If you don't go to the king, you will die. Those are your options. And so here's what Esther says in verse 15. 
Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, okay, I'll do it. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. For the first time, we begin to see hope arising within Esther's heart, at least at a spiritual level. For the first time, this Esther, who has been known to be resourceful, to be street smart, to use her beauty, to elevate, to to all of these things, for the first time, she says, you know what? I am powerless in this situation. There's nothing that I can do. And so she calls on the 15 million Jews. She calls her church to fast and pray. She says, me and my maids will do the same. She gets her house church together, and she says, we're going to fast and pray for three days. Okay, for three days, we're going to go, and we're going to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. He's got to show up, because if he doesn't, then we're all in big trouble. And here's what she says. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Like, after we do that, after we fast, then I will do the unthinkable. I will cast my lot, not as the queen of Persia, but as a race bent for destruction. I will throw my lot with them, and I will say I am one of them. I believe in my God. This girl who five years earlier did not stand for what she believed in in the bedroom of the king, five years later in the redemption of that choice, she says, I will stand in the bedroom of the king, and I will risk my life on behalf of my people. And if I perish, I perish. But my God, my calling, and my people, for their sake, I will take this risk and I will go into the king's bedroom and make this request. Wow. And if God could use someone like Esther and bring about this kind of a transformation within her heart so that she's willing to lay her life down, Because every time you and I come into our calling, it calls us out of our comfort zone. And as we read the book of Esther, then God is calling us to take one step out of our comfort zone, whatever that looks like. For some of you, that means you've been going to church, but you haven't professed your faith in Christ before people because you're scared of what others will think of you. I think your next step is to, to do that to get baptized, to say, I'm a child of God. Maybe that next step is, hey, I'm afraid. I've been afraid to pray uh, as I go to school before I eat my lunch. And everyone else in Persia just eats their lunch without praying. Maybe what God's calling you to do this week is to begin and say, I'm going to take a step of faith and pray. I had a couple middle school girls who were talking about how they wore their God is good VBS shirts to school. And one of their teachers said, you believe God is good? Right? Are you a Christian? And then the teacher said, I'm so happy 
to know that. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good because there are people in your schools who may need to see you take a step of faith so that they might be emboldened to live for God also. A small step of faith out of your comfort zone into your calling. Maybe it's to start a group of, 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 of people five minutes before school starts and say every Monday, why don't we go to school and let's pray for our school and pray for our teachers so that maybe God will do something within our school. Maybe it's to go to your workplace and say, hey, I'm going to start a small uh, study if anyone wants to come 30 minutes before work starts. And we're going to just look through uh, a couple passage and just talk about what it means in our lives. Maybe it means for the first time taking a step of faith and saying, I'm going I'm to commit to going to a mission trip next year. Because I want to I wanna grow into that place. I want to take a step of faith into my purpose and into my calling that God has for me. There's a, a pastor who used to be in, in Korea named Eddie Byun. He was at a church called Onnidi, one of the largest uh, Korean, American, Korean churches. He was pastoring the English side, and he's doing, just doing a great ministry. And his heart began to beat for down the road. There was a place in Korea that was well-known for its trafficking of underaged girls. And so as he got to know some of the, the people there, some of the people in the industry, both the sellers, the providers, as well as uh, the girls involved in it, uh, his church started doing outreaches, started giving flowers, started praying for people there. Uh, and in time, he got really in with those people. Their church was, was committed to that. He wrote a book out about it called uh, Justice Awakening, and he, he made a documentary called Save My Soul. It's an, an hour long. You should, uh, yeah, if you are... It's probably, you know, there's some, some stuff that shouldn't be seen by young people, but if you go to Amazon Prime, you can get it and you can watch. It's an hour. It's powerful. It talks about how God led him to do these things. And it talks about how when they interviewed people on the street, men and women on the street said, do you know about this place? Do you know that the stuff that goes on? They're like, yeah, we all know about it. It says, uh, how many people do you know who, who go to these places? And they're almost like in shock. They're like, we don't know anyone who doesn't go to these places businessmen, students, every guy we know goes to places like that. And it was appalling. What if your daughter was in there? Oh, I wouldn't tell my daughter to do it. It's shameful. Then why do you go and, and see other people who go to these places? Well, it's different. It's different. And they have all of their reasoning and all of their logic. And after he made that documentary, he did an interview with uh, the, the providers. They call, well, yeah, with the providers of these women, the, the men who own these brothels and these shops. And once those people got exposed, I mean, it's the police, they interview police. Police are like, we know what goes on, but we just don't care. They're not hurting anybody. And so they turned the other way. And so Eddie got in, uh, you know, he got, he got a lot of flack from it, from a lot of different people who didn't like the work that he was doing. In fact, it, it was, you know, uh, eventually it got dangerous for him and his family to be there. And so they, he was advised to leave Korea. And so he came and He's uh, doing work in California now. But the attack against him and his family was so deep that uh, it caused him to write a second book called Praying for Your Pastor, and then he wrote a third book called Praying for Your Missionary. But he's understanding what Esther understood, that to come into your calling means it takes a great deal of courage because you're leaving what's comfortable. You're leaving the palace in order to identify with the chosen people of God, oppressed though they may be. But Eddie would be the first one to tell you that when I think about each young girl who's being saved out of these places, 
right? How can I stay silent about what's going on there? Right, that's Esther's heart. For the sake of my people, how can I stay silent? And so she gave up the palace. This is what, I mean, this happened before it was Moses. You could be the prince of Egypt. But he says, I cast my lot with a group of slaves. Let my people go. It's the Apostle Paul who said, I would rather be cursed if only my people, the Jews, could be saved. What all of this ultimately points us to the true and greater Esther who left his palace of heaven and entered into the world that he created, stepping out of the comforts of glory in order to identify and be numbered with the transgressors, a cursed race of people who deserve nothing but destruction. And Jesus loved, and he loved, and he loved. He did not say, if I perish, I perish. He says, when I perish, I will come back again. And whoever believes in me, check this, will not perish, but they will have the life that is eternal. That's what it means to live in Persia as a people of God. Right? Esther's saying, the die has been cast, the line has been drawn, and I'm stepping over it today. And the call of God in our lives is, will you stand for God for such a time as this to claim your purpose, to claim your calling, to claim your identity in Christ, and to live so that others might find life in him? Let's pray together. Let's respond to his word by reflecting on where God has us today. You are where you are, your place and your position for such a time as this, and it's not an accident. And God has put you there because he has a work that is to be done where you are because there are people right where you are who need the hope of the gospel. And yeah, it will take a little bit of, well, it will take courage and faith to step into that. But would you do that? And could it be that God has placed you right here, right now, for such a time as this? Let's pray together for a minute. What does it look like for you to take one step today? What does it look like for you to take one step of faith out of your comfort and into your calling? What does that one small step look like today. Let's pray. Lord, help me to take that step. Can we do that? Let's pray for a minute. Father, lift up my feet, lift up my head, that I would know who I am in you, that I would walk with you into my calling. Let's pray for a minute, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll continue. in heaven we thank you thank you that you're a God of great grace and redemption 
that you use the weak, the fallen, the broken, the worldly in order to accomplish your purposes for those who are willing to take a step of faith and be used by you. Father, I pray that today in our hearts uh, that we would have taken one step forward to say, Father, in this time and in this place, I'm here for a reason. And I want to live to claim that, to embrace that, to walk in that, to live in that in order that others might find hope through my life. It's often been said, everyone will die, but not everyone will truly live. Pray that you would raise up people who are fully alive. They're fully alive to the call of God in them. Thank you so much. We love you because we, you have loved us first. Pray that you would help us to respond with generous obedience. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.